John Owen's work on pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, the manner of conversion explained in the instance of Augustine. As among all the doctrines of the gospel, there is none opposed with more violence and subtlety than that concerning our regeneration by the immediate powerful effectual operation of the Spirit of Grace. So there is not scarce anything more despised or scorned by many in the world than that any should profess that there has been such a work of God upon themselves, or on any occasion declare aught of the way and manner in which it was wrought. The very mentioning of this has grown a derision among some that call themselves Christians, and to plead an interest or concern in this grace is to forfeit all a man's reputation with many who would be thought wise, and boast that they are rational. And either is this a practice taken up of late, in these declining times of the world, but seems to have been started and followed from days of old, possibly from the beginning. Yea, the enmity of Cain against Abel was but a branch of this proud and perverse inclination. The example of Ishmael in the scripture is a representative of all such, as under an outward profession of the true religion, did or do scoff at those who, being as Isaac, children of the promise, profess an evidence and interest in the eternal power of it, which they are unacquainted with. And the same practice may be traced in succeeding ages. Hence, Holy Augustine, entering upon the confession of its greater sins, designing by this to magnify the glory and efficacy of the grace of God in his conversion, provides against the scorn of men, which he knew he should meet with. He says, Let arrogant men deride or scorn me, who were never savingly cast down nor broken in pieces by you, O God. Yet I will, or rather let me confess my own shame to your praise. Let none be offended with these expressions of being savingly or wholesomely cast down and broken of God, for in the judgment of this great person they are not fanatical. We may not therefore think it strange if the same truth, the same practice and profession of it, still meet with the same entertainment. Let them deride and scorn it who never were humbled savingly nor broken with a sense of their own sin nor relieved by grace. The holy work of God's Spirit is to be owned and the truth to be avowed as it is in Jesus. Of the original deprivation of our nature we have treated so far, as is needful to our present purpose, yet some things must be added concerning the effects of that deprivation, which will conduce to the right understanding of the way and manner in which the Spirit of God proceeds for the healing and removal of it, which we have now under special consideration. We may observe first that the corrupt principle of sin, the native habitual inclination that is in us to evil, works early in our natures and for the most part prevents all the actings of grace in us. Though some may be sanctified in or from the womb, yet in order of nature this native corruption has first place in them. For a clean thing cannot be brought out of an unclean, but that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. It is to no purpose to say that he speaks of wicked men, that is, such who are habitually and profligately so. For whatever any man may afterward run into by a course of sin, all men are morally alike from the womb. And it is an aggravation of the wickedness of men that it begins so early and holds on an uninterrupted course. Children are not able to speak from the womb as soon as they are born, yet here are they said to speak lies. It is therefore the perverse acting of depraved nature in infancy that is intended for everything that is irregular, 
that doesn't answer the law of our creation and rule of our obedience is a lie. And among the many examples collected by Augustine of such irregular actings of nature in its infant state, one is peculiarly remarkable in his confessions. He says in chapter 7, Those irregular and perverse agitations of mind and of the will or appetite, not yet under the conduct of reason which appears in infants, with the indignation and little self-revenges in which they are accompanied in their disappointments when all about them do not subject themselves to their inclinations, it may be to their hurt, or from the obliquity of our nature, and effects of that depraved habit of sin in which it is wholly possessed." And by the frequency of these lesser actings are the mind and will prepared for those more violent and impetuous motions, which by the improvement of their natural capacities in the incitation of new objects presented to their corruptions, they are exposed to and filled with. God did not originally thus create our nature, a condition worse than and inferior to that of other creatures, and whose young ones there are none of these disorders. But a regular compliance with their natural instinct prevails in them. And as the dying of multitudes of infants, notwithstanding the utmost care for their preservation, in which the young ones of other creatures all generally live, if they have, whereby their nature may be sustained, argues the imputation of sin to them, for death entered by sin and passed upon all, insomuch that it all have sinned. So those irregular actings peculiar to them prove sin inherent in them, or the corruption of their nature from their conception. Secondly, with the increase of our natural faculties and the strengthening of the members of our bodies, which by nature become ready instruments of unrighteousness to sin, Romans 6.13, this perverse principle acts itself with more evidence, frequency, and success in the production of actual sin, or in ordinate actings of the mind, will, and affections. So the wise man tells us that childhood and youth are vanity, Ecclesiastes 11 verse 10. And the mind of man, in a state of childhood and youth, puts itself forth in all kinds of vain actings and foolish imaginations, perverse and forward appetites, falseness in their words, with sensible effects of corrupt inclinations in every kind. Augustine's first book of Confessions is an excellent comment on that text in which the vanity of childhood and youth are graphically described with pathetical self-reflecting complaints concerning the guilt of sin which is contracted in them. Some perhaps may think light of those ways of folly and vanity in which childhood does, or left alone would, consume itself, that there is no moral evil in those childish innocencies. But Augustine was of another mind and opinion. This is not innocency. It is not so. The same principle and habit of mind carried over to riper age and greater occasions brings forth those greater sins which the lives of men are filled with in this world. And who is there who has a serious reverence of God with any due apprehension of his holiness and a clear conviction of the nature of sin? who is not able to call over such actings in childhood, which most think fit to connive at, in which they merely remember the perversity of it. They are now ashamed. By this means is a heart prepared for a further obduration in sin, by the confirmation of native obstinacy. Thirdly, to those more general irregularities actual sins do succeed. Such a man as are against the remaining light of nature are committed in rebellion to the dictates and guidance of our minds and consciences. 
the influence of those intelligences of moral good and evil which are inseparable from the faculties of our souls. For although in some they may be stifled and overborne, yet they can never be utterly obliterated or extinguished, but will accompany the nature of man to eternity, even in that condition in which they shall be of no other use but to add to and increase its misery. Amongst those we may call over one or two instances. Lying is such a sin which the deprivation of nature and youth is prone to exert itself by, and that uh, for a number of reasons, not now to be inquired into, they go astray from the womb speaking lies. The first inducement of our nature to sin was by a lie, and we fell in Adam by giving credit to it. And there is in every sin a particular lie. But speaking falsely, Contrary to what they know to be true is that which children are prone to, though some more than others. According as other vicious habits prevail in them, whose actings they foolishly think to thatch over and cover up. This that holy person whom we instance and acknowledges and bewails in himself, Augustine says, I saw not, O God, into what a gulf of filth I was cast out from before you. For what was more filthy than I, whilst of love and plays and desire of looking after vanities, I deceived teachers and parents with innumerable lies. And this good man was afterward exceedingly humbled for this, and from it learned much of the vileness of his own nature. And we find by experience that a sense of the sin oftentimes accompanies the first real convictions that befall the souls of men. For when they seriously reflect upon themselves, or view themselves in the mirror of the law, they are not only sensible of the nature of this sin, but also how much they indulge themselves in it. Partly while they remember how, on the least occasions, they were surprised to commit it, which yet they neglected to watch against, and partly understanding how sometimes they made it their business, by premeditated falsehood, so to cover other sins as to escape rebuke and correction. The mention of these things will probably be entertained with contempt and scorn in this age, in which the most prodigious wickednesses of men are made but a sport. But God... His holiness and his truth are still the same. Whatever alterations there may be in the world. And the holy psalmist seems to have some reflection on this vice of youth when he prays that God would take from him the way of lying. Of the same nature are those lethers, thefts, and despoiling their parents and governors of such things as they are not allowed to take and make use of for themselves. They rob their father or mother and say, It is no transgression. He sometimes stole from his parents, says Augustine, either to gratify his own sensual appetite or to give to his companions. In such examples does original depravity exert itself in youth or childhood, and by this both increase its own power and to fortify the mind and the affections against the light and efficacy of conviction of sin. Fourthly, as men grow up in a state of nature, sin gets ground in them and upon them subjectively and objectively. Concupiscence gets strength with age and grows in violence as persons arrive to ability for its exercise. The instruments of it and the faculties of the soul, organs of the senses, and members of the body, growing every day more serviceable to it, and more apt to receive impressions from it or to comply with its motions. Hence some charge the sense of youth on the heat of blood and the restlessness of the animal spirits, which prompt men to irregularities and extravagancies. But these are only things which it makes use of to exert its poison by. 
For sin turns everything in the state to its own advantage and abuses even the commandment itself to work in us all manner of concupiscence. Romans 7 verse 8. Again, the objects of loss by the occasions of life are now multiplied. Temptations increase with years in the businesses of the world, but especially by that corruption of conversation which is amongst the most. Hence a number of persons are in this part of their youth one way or other overtaken with some gross actual sin or sins. That all are not so is a mere effect of preventing grace and not at all from themselves. This the Apostle respects in his charge of 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Such lusts work effectually and prevail mightily in those that are young, if not subdued by the grace of God. And David, in a sense from experience of this, prays that God would not remember the sins of his youth. Psalm 25 verse 7. And a reflection from them is sometimes the torment of old age, Job 20, 20 verse 11. So he in whom we have chosen to exemplify the instances of such a course, he humbly confesses to God as fallen into and being overtaken with great sins, such as fornication and uncleanness in his younger days, in the mire of which he was long detained. To this purpose he discourses at large, and of the reason of this his humble and public acknowledgement he gives this holy account. O oh my God! not unto you, but before you, or in your presence, unto my own race, unto humankind, whatever portion of it may fall on these writings of mine, and to what end, namely, that I and every one who shall read these things may consider out of what great depths we are to cry to you. So he, who didn't live to see the days in which homo confession of sin was made a manner of contempt and scorn. Now, there is commonly a twofold event to men's falling under the power of temptations, and by this into great actual sins. God sometimes takes occasion from them to awaken their consciences to a deep sense not only of that sin in particular, whose guilt they have contracted, but of their other sins also. The great physician of their souls turns his poison into a medicine and makes that wound which they have given themselves to the lancing of a festered sore. For whereas their ossetency, prejudices, and custom of sinning have taken away the sense of lesser sins and secured them from reflection from them, the stroke on their consciences from those greater provocations pierces so deep as that they are forced to entertain thoughts of looking out after a release or remedy. So did they of old at the sermon of Peter when he charged them with the guilt of a consent to the crucifying of Jesus Christ. They were pricked in their heart and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2, verses 36 and 37. Number 2. With others it proves a violent entrance into a further pursuit of sin. The bounds of restraints with the influence of natural light being broken up and rejected, men's lusts being let loose, do break through all remaining obstacles and run out into the greatest compass of excess and riot, observing no present evil to ensue on what they have done according to their first fears. They are emboldened to greater wickedness, Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11. And by this means is their conversion to God rendered more difficult, and men thus wander away more and more from him to the greatest distance that is recoverable by grace. For fifthly, a course in and a custom of sinning, with many ensues upon this. Such the apostle treats concerning Ephesians 4:18 and 19. Being past filling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work on uncleanness with greediness. Custom of sinning takes away the sense of it. The course of the world takes away the shame of it, and the love to it makes men greedy in the pursuit of it. And this last effect of sin is incited, provoked, and assisted by temptations, has great variety in the effects and degrees of it. 
Hence are the various courses of unhumble sinners in the world in which the outrage and excess of some seems to justify others, and their more sedate irregularities and less conspicuous provocations. Ye some who are not in any better state and condition as to their interests in the covenant of God than others, will yet not only startle at, but really abhor those outrages of sin and wickedness which they fall into. Now this difference arises not from hence, that the nature of all men is not equally corrupt and depraved, but that God is pleased to make his restraining grace effectual towards some, to keep them within those bounds of sin which they shall not pass over, and to permit others so to fall under a conjunction of their lusts and temptations as that they proceed to all manners of evil. Moreover, there are peculiar inclinations to some sins, if not inlaid in, yet much enhanced and made liable to incitements by the temperature of the body. And some are more exposed to temptations in the world from their outward circumstances and occasions of life. By this are some even precipitated to all manners of evil. But still the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust is the same naturally in all. All differences to good from evil. I mean not as to the nature of things themselves, but as to men's interest in them, so as to adhere to the one and avoid the other. It's from the will of God. Thus he secretly prepares for some a better temperature of nature, docile and pliable to such notices of things, as may entertain their minds and satisfy them above sensual delights. And some he disposes in their educations, calling society's aims and designs in the world, into ways inconsistent with open lewdness, which will much balance their inclinations, besides the secret internal actings on their hearts and minds, of which afterwards. This he excellently expresses in his confessions. I will love you, O Lord, and thank you, and confess to your name, because you have forgiven me my evil and nefarious deeds. I impute it to your grace and mercy that you have made my sins to melt away as ice, and I impute it to your grace as to all the evils which I have not done. For what could not I have done who loved wickedness for itself? All I acknowledge are forgiven me, both the evils that I have done of my own accord, and what through your guidance I have not done. Who is there who, considering his own weakness, dare ascribe his chastity or innocency to his own strength? that he may less love you, as though your mercy were less necessary to him, in which you forgive the sins of them that are converted to you. For let not him who, being called of you, and having heard your voice, has avoided the evils which I have confessed, deride me, that being sick, I was healed of that physician from whom he received a mercy not to be sick, or not to be so sick. And therefore let him love you so much the more, as he sees himself prevented from having fallen into the great maladies of sin, through that God by whom he sees, delivered me from the great maladies of the sin into which I had actually fallen. This brief account of the actings of corrupted nature, until it comes to the utmost of a recoverable alienation from God, may sometimes illustrate the set off the work of his grace towards us. And thus far, whatever habit be contracted in a course of sin, yet the state of men is absolutely recoverable by the grace of Jesus Christ, administered in the Gospel, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. No state of sin is absolutely unhealable until God has variously dealt with men by his Spirit. His word must be rejected, and he must be sinned against in a peculiar manner before remission is possible. All sins and blasphemies antecedent to this may be forgiven men, and that before their conversion to God, Matthew 12, verses 31 and 32, Luke 12, verse 10. 
Therefore, the manner and degrees of the operations of the Spirit of God on the minds of men towards and in their conversion is that which we shall now inquire into, reducing what we have to offer concerning it to certain heads or instances first. Under the ashes of our collapsed nature, there are yet remaining certain sparks of celestial fire, consisting in inbred notices of good and evil, of rewards and punishments, of the presence and the all-seeing eye of God of help and assistance to be had from him, with the dread of his excellencies, where anything is apprehended, unworthy of him, or provoking to him, and where there are any means of instruction from supernatural revelation by the word priest or the care of parents in private. There they are insensibly improved and increased. By this, men do obtain an objective, distinct knowledge of what they had subjectively and radically, though very imperfectly before. These notices, therefore, God oftentimes excites and quickens even in them that are young, so that they shall work in them some real regard of and applications to him. And those great workings about the things of God and towards him, which are sometimes found in children, are not mere effects of nature. For that would not so act itself, were it not, by one occasion or other, for that end administered by the providence of God, effectually excited. And many can call over such divine visitations in their youth which now they understand to be so. To this purpose speaks a person mentioned, and to this he adds some general instruction which he had from the word, from the same principles when he was a little after, surprised with a fit of sickness, he cried out with all earnestness that he might be baptized, that so he might, and he thought, go to heaven. For his father was not yet a Christian, whence he was not baptized in his infancy. Such affections and occasional actings of soul towards God are worked in many by the Spirit, with the most they wear off and perish, as they did with him who after this cast himself in flagitious sins. But in some God does, and in by the use of these means, and lay their hearts with those seeds of faith and grace which gradually cherishes and increases. Secondly, God works upon men by his Spirit and outward means to cause them to take some real and steady consideration of him their own distance from him, and obnoxiousness to his righteousness on the account of sin. It is almost incredible to apprehend, but that it is testified to by daily experience how men will live even where the word is read and preached, how they will get a form of speaking of God, yea, and of performing some duties of religion, and yet never come to have any steady thoughts of God or of their relation to him or of their concern in his will. Whatever they speak of God, he is not in all their thoughts, Psalm 10, verse 4. Whatever they do in religion, they do it not to him, Amos 5:25. They have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, John 5:37. Knowing nothing for themselves, which is their duty, Job 5:27. And yet it is hard to convince them that such is their condition. But when God is pleased to carry on his work of light and grace in them, they can call to mind and understand how it was with them in their formal darkness. Then they will acknowledge that in truth they never had serious steady thoughts of God, but only such as were occasional and transient. Therefore God begins here with them. And by this, to subdue them from under the absolute power of the vanity of their minds by one means or other, he fixes in them steady thoughts concerning himself and their relation to him. And there are several ways which he proceeds in the effecting of this is one by some sudden amazing judgments in which he reveals his wrath from heaven against the ungodliness of men, Romans 1, verse 18. So Waldo was affected when his companion was stricken dead as he walked with him in the fields. 
which proved the occasion of his conversion to God. So the psalmist describes the affections and thoughts of men when they are surprised with the storm at sea. An instance of this we have in the mariners of Jonah's ship in chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. And that Pharaoh, who despised one day, saying, Who is the Lord that I should regard him, being the next day terrified with thunder and lightning, cries out, Entreat the Lord for me, that it may be so no more. Exodus 9.28 And such like impressions from divine power most men at one time or other do have experience of. Number 2. By Personal Afflictions, Job 33, verses 19 and 20 Affliction naturally bespeaks anger, and anger respects sin. It bespeaks itself to be God's messenger to call sin to remembrance. The time of affliction is a time of consideration, Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14. And if men be not hard-hearted and obdurate, almost into practical atheism by a course of sinning, they cannot but but think themselves who sins affliction, and for what end it was sent. Hence great thoughts of the holiness of God and of his hatred of sin with some sense of men's own guilt and special crimes, will arise. And these effects many times prove preparatory and materially dispositive to conversion. And not what these things are in themselves able to operate is to be considered, but what they are designed to and made effectual for by the Holy Ghost. Number three, by remarkable deliverances and mercies. So it was with Naaman the Syrian, Second Kings 5, verses 15 to 17. Sudden changes from great dangers and distresses by unexpected reliefs deeply affect the minds of men, convincing them of the power, presence, and goodness of God. And this produces a sense and acknowledgement of their own unworthiness of what they have received. Hence also some temporary effects of submission to the divine will and gratitude proceed. For an observation of the conversation of others has affected many to seek into the causes and ends of it. And this inclines them to imitation. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Number 5, the word in the reading or preaching of it is the principal means of this. Since the Holy Spirit employs and makes use of in his entrance into this work. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. For those convictions befall not men from the word universally or promiscuously, but as the Holy Spirit wills and designs. It is by the law that men have the knowledge of sin, Romans 7, 7. Yet we see by experience that the doctrine of the law is despised by the most to hear it. Therefore it has not in itself a force or virtue always to work conviction of sin in them to whom it is outwardly proposed. Only towards some the Spirit of God is pleased to put forth a special energy in the dispensation of it. By these and the like means does God oftentimes put the wildness of corrupted nature to a stand, and stir the faculties of the soul by an effectual, though not saving impression upon them, seriously to consider of itself in its relation to him and his will. And by this are men oftentimes incited and engaged to many duties of religion as prayer for the pardon of sin with resolutions of amendment. And although these things in some are subordinated to a further and more effectual work of the Spirit of God on them, yet with many they prove infinite and fading, their goodness in them being as a morning cloud and as the early dew which passes away. Hosea 6 verse 4. And the reasons this is, is that men cast off these warnings of God and pursue not their own intentions under them, nor answer the end that they are meant to lead to, or obvious for, the darkness of their minds being yet uncured, 
They are not able to discern the true nature of these divine intimations and instructions, but after a while regard them not, or reject them as the occasions of needless scruples and fears. Number two, presumption of their present condition, that it is as good as it need be, or is is convenient in their present circumstances and occasions, makes them neglect the improvement of their warnings. Number three, profane societies and relations such as it may be scoff at and deride all tremblings at divine warnings with ignorant ministers that undertake to teach what they have not learned are great means of hardening men in their sins and of forfeiting the benefit of these divine intimations. Number four, they will as to all efficacy and emotions they bring on the affections of men decay and expire of themselves if they are not diligently improved. Therefore, in many they perish through mere sloth and negligence. Number five, Satan applies all his energies to the defeat of these beginnings of any good in the souls of men. Number six, that which effectually and utterly overthrows this work, which causes him to cast off these heavenly warnings, is their mere love of loss and pleasures, or the unconquered adherence of a corrupted heart to sensual and sinful objects, that offer present satisfaction to its carnal desires. By this means is this work of the Spirit of God in the hearts and minds of many utterly defeated to the increase of their guilt, in addition to their natural hardness and the ruin of their souls. But in some of them he is graciously pleased to renew his work, and by more effectual means to carry it on to perfection, as shall be afterward declared. Now there is scarce any of these instances of the care and watchfulness of God over the souls of men whom he designs either to convince or convert for the ends of his own glory. But the holy person whom we have proposed as an example gives an account of them in and towards himself, declaring in like manner how, by the ways and means mentioned, they were frustrated and came to nothing. Such were the warnings which he acknowledged that God gave him by the persuasions and exhortations of his mother. Such were those which he had in sickness of his own and in the death of his dear friend and companion. And in all the several warnings he had from God, he charges a lack and guilt of their non-improvement on his natural blindness. His mind being not illuminated in the corruption of his nature not yet cured with the efficacy of evil society in the course of the world and the places where he lived. But it would be tedious to transcribe the particular accounts that he gives of these things though all of them singularly worthy of consideration. For I must say that in my judgment there is none among the ancient or modern divines to this day who either in the declarations of their own experiences or the directions to others have equaled much less him in an accurate search and observation of all the secret actings of the Spirit of God in the minds and souls of men, both towards and in their recovery or conversion. And in order to this, scarce any one not divinely inspired, has so traced the way of the servant, or the effectual working of original sin in and on the hearts of men, with the efficacy communicated by this to various temptations and occasions of life in this world. The way also in which the deceitfulness of sin and compliance with objective temptations seeks to elude and frustrate the work of God's grace when it begins to attempt the strongholds of sin in the heart were exceedingly discovered to Augustine. Neither has any man more lively and expressly laid open the power of effectual and victorious grace with the manner of its operation and prevalency. 
In all these things, by the guidance of the good spirit of God and attendance to the word, he exemplified from his own experience in the whole work of God towards him. Only it must be acknowledged that he declares these things in such a way and manner, as also with such expressions as many in our days would cry out on as fulsome and fanatical. Thirdly, in the way of calling men to the saving knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit convinces them of sin, or he brings them under the power of a work of conviction. It is not my design, nor here in my way, to handle the nature of the work of conviction, the means, causes, and effects of it. Besides, it has been done at large by others. It is sufficient to my purpose to show the nature of it in general, the causes of it, and the ways in which men lose their convictions and so become more and more hardened in sin. And finally, how the Holy Spirit carries on the work in some to complete conversion to God. For the nature of it in general, it consists in affixing the vain mind of a sinner to a due consideration of sin, its nature, tendency, and end, with his own concern in it, and affixing of a due sense of sin upon the secure mind of the sinner with suitable affections to its apprehensions. The warnings before insisted on, in which God excites men to some steady notices of him and themselves, are like calls given to a man in a profound sleep in which, being startled, he lifts up himself for a little time, but oppressed with the power of his deep slumber, quickly lays himself down again, as Augustine expresses it. But this work of conviction abides with men, and they are no way able speedily to disentangle themselves from it. Now the mind of man, which is the subject of this work of conviction, has two things distinctly to be considered in it first. The understanding which is the active, no ethical or contemplative power and faculty of it. Second, the affections in which his passive and sensitive power consists. With respect to this, there are two parts of the work of conviction. The fixing of the mind, the rational contemplative power of it upon a due consideration of sin. The fixing of a due sense of sin on the practical, passive, sensible part of the mind. That is, the conscience and affections, as was said before. It is a great work to fix a vain mind of an unregenerate sinner on a due consideration of his sin, its nature and tendency, the darkness of their own mind and inexpressible vanity in which I place the principal effect of our apostasy from God, does disenable, hinder, and divert them from such apprehensions. Hence God so often complains of the foolishness of the people that they would not consider, that they would not be wise to consider their latter end. We find by experience this folly and vanity in many to an astonishment. No reasons, arguments, entreaties by all that is naturally dear to them. No necessities can prevail with them to fix their minds on a due consideration of sin. But also Satan now employs all his engines to beat off the efficacy and power of this work. And when his temptations and delusions are mixed with men's natural darkness and vanity, the mind seems to be impregnably fortified against the power of conviction. For although it be only real conversion to God that overthrows the kingdom of Satan in us, yet this work of conviction raises such a combustion in it that he cannot but fear will be its end. And a strong man armed would, if possible, keep his goods and house in peace. Hence all sorts of persons have daily experienced in their children, servants, relations, how difficult, yea, how impossible it is to fix their minds on a due consideration of sin until it be wrought in them by the exceeding greatness of the power of the Spirit of God. Therefore, in this consists the first part of this work of conviction. It fixes a mind on a due consideration of sin. So it is expressed in Psalm 51, verse 3, My sin is ever before me. 
God reproves men and sets their sins in order before their eyes, Psalm 50, verse 21. Hence they are necessitated, as it were, always to behold them in that which way soever they turn themselves. Fain they would cast them behind their backs or cast out the thoughts of them, but the arrows of God stick in them, and they cannot take off their minds from their consideration. And whereas there are these three things in sin, first, the, the origination of it, and its native inherence in us, as Psalm 51.5. Secondly, the state of it, or the liableness of men to the wrath of God and the account of it. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Thirdly, the particular sins of men's lives in the first part of the work of conviction. The minds of men are variously exercised with respect to them according to the Spirit of God is pleased to engage and fix them. As the mind is by this fixed on the consideration of sin, so a sense of sin must also be fixed on the mind, that is, the conscience and affections. A bare contemplation of the concerns of sin is of little use in this manner. The scripture principally evidences this work of conviction, or places it in this effect of a sense of sin, and trouble, sorrow, disquietment of mind, fear of ruin, and the like, Acts 2, verse 37, Acts 24, verse 25. But this I must not enlarge on. This, therefore, is the second thing which we observe in God's gracious actings toward the recovery of the souls of men from their apostasy and from under the power of sin. Number two, the principal efficient cause of this work is the Holy Ghost, the preaching of the word, especially of the law, being the instrument which he makes use of in this. The knowledge of sin is by the law, both the nature, guilt, and curse belonging to it, Romans 7, 7. There is therefore no conviction of sin, but what consists in an emanation of light and knowledge from the doctrine of the law, with an evidence of its power and a sense of its curse. Other means as afflictions, dangers, sicknesses, fears, disappointments may be made use of to excite, stir up, and put an edge upon the minds and affections of men. Yet it is by one means or other from the law of God that such a discovery is made of sin to them, and such a sense of it wrought upon them as belong to this work of conviction. But it is the Spirit of God alone that is the principal efficient cause of it, for he works these effects on the minds of men. God takes it upon himself as his own work to reprove men and set their sins in order before their eyes, Psalm 50, verse 21. And that the same work is done immediately by the Spirit is expressly declared. John 16, verse 8. He alone it is who makes all men effectual to this end and purpose. Without his special and immediate actings on us to this end, we may hear the law preached all the days of our lives and not be once affected with it. And it may, by the way, be worth our observation to consider how God, designing the calling or conversion of the souls of men, does in his holy wise providence overrule all their outward concerns, so as that they shall be disposed into such circumstances as conduce to the end aimed at, either by their own inclinations and choice, or by the intervention of accidents crossing their inclinations and frustrating their designs. He will lead them into such societies, acquaintances, relations, places, means, as he has ordained to be useful to them for the great ends of their conviction and conversion. So in particular, Augustine abounds in his contemplation on the holy wise providence of God in carrying of him from Carthage to Rome, and from thence to Milan, where he heard Ambrose preach every Lord's Day, which proved at length the means of his thorough conversion to God. And in that whole course, by his discourse upon it, he discovers excellency is, on the one hand, a variety of his own projects and designs, which oftentimes were perverse and forward. So, on the other, the constant guidance of divine providence, working powerfully through all occurrences towards a blessing in designed for him, 
And I know I weighed doubt, but did God exercise him to those distinct experiences of sin and grace in his own heart and ways, because he had designed him to be the great champion of the doctrine of his grace against all of its enemies, and that not only in his own age in which it met with a fierce opposition, but also in all succeeding ages by his excellent labors preserved for the use of the church.' 